Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 163 of the Intercooler Podcast with me, Dan Prosser, and Andrew Frankel, my co-host. Now, it's a bit of a magazine-style show this week because we're covering lots of ground. We've got news of a couple of British sports cars, um, and then later on we're debating whether or not we prefer sports cars or supercars. Um, that's all to come. Before that, I will just remind you all to rate and review the podcast. And while you're doing it, just hit the follow button or hit the subscribe button on whichever app you're using to listen to this. That really helps us a lot. Thank you for doing that and enjoy the episode. There's some news that we need to discuss uh, to get this episode underway, Andrew. Um, News of an Aston Martin, which we'll come on to in a little bit, but also an interesting new Caterham. Potentially Mm. interesting. And I want to get your views on this thing because they've called it EV7. Um, it's an electric Caterham. And actually, for now, it's a concept. Um, and I think all we've seen are some renders. Um, so I, I don't know what state the actual concept car is in. Well, is there I, a think, physical I think car it's mainly running at the Festival of Speed, which I think okay. is the end of June. So You'd hope if that. it's not running now, it's going yeah. to need to be fairly shortly. Yeah, okay. So we'll see the actual thing soon. That's good to know. Um, yeah. But uh, let me just sort of run through some of the specs. It's got a 51 kilowatt hour battery. Um, they say 40 kilowatt hours usable. So 51 kilowatt hours, actually, that seems fairly large to me. I mean, something like a, a big Tesla might have a 100 kilowatt hour battery. Yeah. Um, that is enormous. So 51, it's half the size of that. So it's still fairly substantial, well, isn't it? it? Something like a, an electric Mini mm. has got a 30 kilowatt hour yeah. battery. Has it really so, for only 30? Yeah, goodness me. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not it, I haven't done this. I had one in recently, and I just um, I was amused to note that the size of the battery in that pure EV Mini was the same size as the battery in the plug-in hybrid yeah. Mercedes S Class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's what. I mean, that's that's really why I know. I can't imagine that a a Honda E's got a bigger one than that. 
So no. it is for a little car. It is quite a big battery, isn't it? So it, it'll presumably have decent range based on that battery capacity. Except, except they haven't said anything about that. No, no. Well, they've and come up with this sort of slightly strange 2015, yeah. 20 formula, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah, the idea being, was it, is it 15, 20, 15? I think that's, is, that's right, isn't it? You can do 15 minutes of track driving. Or is it the other way around? Is it 20, I 15, the, 20? I think it's 20 minutes of track driving, 15 minutes on charge and get another 20 minutes of track driving. Yeah, which is great as long as you've got the right kind of fast charger in the paddock. Um, but actually, you know, if it genuinely does do that, I think that's enough. You, you never need to do 30 minutes in a stint on a track day, do you? You'd be exhausted. No, but it is so dependent on, you know, tracks investing. You know, I don't know. I mean, maybe there are. Maybe I'm doing tracks a disservice. I don't know any tracks in the UK that have got fast chargers. And by fast chargers, I mean, I think this thing is meant to charge at about 150 kilowatts, isn't it? Um, and it's, you know, I don't know any circuits that's got, you know, they, they, they might have a few um, fast chargers in that they might charge, uh, you know, seven kilowatts or 22 if they've got three phase, but, um, you know. Uh, yeah. It's, so and, it's, and it's, it's all and, in theory, it's going to be it? the major circuits that invest in that. I mean, I can't imagine, yeah. you know, super, super fast charging turning up in the paddock of Mallory Park anytime soon. No. So this thing we're told, we don't know what the range is, um, and actually aero, aerodynamics, that's a factor, isn't it? Because massive, a Caterham 7 doesn't have aero. <laughs> it's, it's like a house no. brick. No, um, no, but, but I, so I've got something interesting to say on that, but I'll come back to that in a minute. Okay, so um, it weighs less than 700 kilograms. Yeah. We don't know the exact figure, but less than 700 kilograms, which, I mean, that is a fantastically light car by any standards, apart from, apart from normal Caterham 7 standards, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but even so, you know, I think that's pretty good going. I, I do wonder about the size of that battery. You know, if they'd taken a, a chunk out of that and that saves 50 kilograms, that's worth doing, isn't it? Um, I suppose we'll know more when we hear about the actual on-road range of the thing. Maybe yeah. that will explain why. Yeah. Um, plenty of power, though. 240 horsepower. Yeah. Single motor. Um, but we know that... And do you know what? They've also quoted the RPM at which that, horse, that power is produced. 9,000 RPM. It's weird to see that quoted for an electric motor, but this sounds quite exciting, doesn't it? 9,000 RPM. Um, yeah, I mean, but do you, do, you, do you remember when they always used to quote um, the speeds at which turbochargers spun? I can no. remember being terribly excited when I discovered my Renault 5 GT Turbo's turbo spun at 80,000 RPM. <laughs> like it meant um, anything, yeah. Yeah, unless it's an internal combustion engine, to me, it's a completely meaningless figure. It doesn't matter, figure. does it? No, it no. doesn't matter. No. Um, they say four seconds, not to 60, 130 flat out. Um, yeah. So it'll be brisk. I mean, the, the, you, you don't need, need any more performance, really, than that from a 7. No, um, no. Argu- arguably, you know given the sort of person who I suspect is going to buy it, you might be able to get away with less. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, so we, we, hopefully this isn't just a technical exercise. Hopefully it's not just a PR exercise. Hopefully they're building up to actually producing a showroom car um, that people can go out and buy because I just want to drive one of these things. I want to know what that feels like, a 7 with an electric motor, with a battery in it, and... What are you missing? The soundtrack. And a, a good snorty four-cylinder soundtrack is such an important thing in a Caterham, I think. And a a manual tank. gear shift. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Can I give you, you my think? take on this thing? Okay. You can. So I think this car is... I don't know any of this. So it's not as if I'm sort of giving the nod and the wink about some inside knowledge that I actually have but can't tell you about. I don't. 
But nevertheless, so this is just pure supposition on my part. Nevertheless, what I, I think this is a stalking horse because what they have also said is that there's going to be another um, electric caterham concept. I think they said we'll see it before the end of the year. So the question is, why do two? Um, and I think this car is all about getting people comfortable with the idea of there being an electric caterham. And I think the caterham seven in its totally unaerodynamic shape is just not... I see where you're going. For want of a better phrase, vehicle for doing it. So my guess is, is that at the very least, they will have put a new body on the 7, a super aerodynamic body on the 7. Bear in mind also um, that the sort of person I think this is going to appeal to, it's not going to be, you know, people who, you know, like their 620Rs. This is going to be people people who... um, who like the idea because let's face it there aren't any at the moment of a lightweight sports cars in which to go cruising around the place probably not at huge speeds um but uh, you know a, a nice thing to go bimbling about the countryside in so i think what they're doing is launching this new car which i can't imagine that they'd ever go to the effort of doing two concept cars even one if there wasn't serious production intent behind it and let's face it this is the way you know all, all these car manufacturers are going to have to go at some stage so i think i think i think they're laying the ground um and they're showing us the the motor and the batteries and the technology and then when they get it in a super slippery car then they'll start talking about the range um and i think that would be really really interesting i mean i'm old enough to remember um you, know, you were still in short trousers the caterham 21 which came out in, when was it, 94, 95, and got stuffed by the Lotus Elise, sadly. Um, but that was the last time Caterham tried to build something other than a 7, or if you don't, if you don't include the Alpine project. project. Um, but I think this is a very real you know, opportunity for them. Don't forget that Caterham is now owned by um, a Japanese company. Um, it's probably got levels of investment that it hasn't um, enjoyed before. And... Yeah, so 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 the, the long of the story is, I think that is what is, I think that is what is happening. And what do I think of it? I actually think it's good news because it's never going to be, well, certainly not for years and years. You know, all that Caterham makes, they're not going to suddenly stop building sevens and only start building EV Caterhams. It'll be a another model in the range, and I can absolutely see that there will because there's absolutely nothing out there like it at the moment. Um, somebody who likes the idea of a purely recreational car that is environmentally friendly and quiet and you know they just like you know, as I say just touring around it won't need a lot of range because it's never going to do huge distances um, that way they can keep it light they can keep it true to catering values to some extent um, I think there's yeah I'm quite I wouldn't say I'm excited about it but I can see what it's about I can see who it's for and as long as it doesn't come at the expense of anything else, why wouldn't you welcome it? Mm. Yeah, I agree. And actually, um, if, it, if there is a different car coming with an electric powertrain and it's not a 7, maybe that would explain why we're looking at a 51 kilowatt hour battery. Exactly. Um, actually quite a substantial battery because a 7 probably doesn't need that. Um, so yeah, interesting one. We'll follow that so, one. So, so, what, so what sort of range do you think it would need to have? And, I, and by range, I don't mean, you know, some WLTP nonsense. I mean, you get in the car at home in the morning, it's fully charged. And OK, it will charge reasonably quickly. And so you probably, you probably won't be the end of the world you have to charge it up. But you know, what are we looking at? 150 miles? I think 150 genuine usable miles. Is it's that fine, right? isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I was um, in the 
Brecon Beacons the other day, um, and I saw, I think, 60 or 70 caterums. And there's th- this annual run that they do. They go oh, from... yeah, I know. It's, it starts It starts almost next door to me. In yes, fact, it does. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I was... Um... I was also in the Brecon Beacons, but I was running, so uh, I couldn't take part in it. No, they, 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 hmm. they, 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 they told me about it and asked me to come along, but I couldn't. Did they? And they go yeah. all the way up to um, the coast, don't they, in Wales? They go up to North Wales, yeah. Yeah, so they go a long way. So for that sort of thing, it's, you need much more range from your electric caterer. But I, I just, maybe you're not doing that sort of journey in that car but, but, for, but, but you see but even if you are you won't be doing that very often so maybe let's say you do that once a year which is all that most people will do and you think to yourself okay fine i'm going to take my new solar i mean you, you might worry about being tittered at by other seven drivers <laughs> yeah. um but you just plan it out and you find somewhere in you know in, in mid wales where you can just park up have a coffee um and that's probably all because it's what's it what are they going to do 200 220 miles something like that mm. and i think they go up there and stay overnight and then come back the next day so even that is not off the cards. No. If you think about how you use your own seven, I mean, when did you, yeah. in a day, when did you last do more than 150 miles? Well, um, it's a good question. So I can't remember when it was, but not that long ago, I took it down to uh, Sussex. I mean, I live in the Wye Valley, um, mm. so on the in the Welsh borders. Um and that was probably about 150 miles. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was ready to get out then. Mm. And yeah, I stayed well, overnight yeah. at a mate's place and I could have plugged it in and charged it up again. Yeah. The point um, being that these cars are recreations, aren't they? And you're yeah. not going to be commuting in them doing no. regular long journeys. Um, and in, you know, in something like a 3 Series, you probably, you'd, def- you'd need more than 150 miles, I would have thought. But in yeah. a Caterham, a pure recreation, that should be plenty. So um, look, can, we, can we just talk... I'm interested in your view just just on this weight matter. So okay, so the the concept car, which is obviously on a seven chassis, is less than 700 kilos. But yeah. we'll call it that's whatever that would mean. That could be 699, couldn't it? So yeah. so that's basically the same, or it makes no difference as the original Elise was mm. in 1995 with its aluminium brakes and so on. So. As we said earlier, by any standards other than Caterham's, a really light car. However, this is a concept, and if I'm right about this other car, that's probably going to weigh a bit more, isn't it? Um, mm. If it's got all-enveloping body and, and, and everything else, and it's probably not going to be so stripped out because they will be aiming at a slightly more comfort-oriented market. So let's say fully road legal with all the gear on it, it's 800 kilos. Mm. Is that a heavy or a light car? I can't make my mind up. It's difficult to know, isn't it? It, de- it depends how well appointed the cabin is, how roomy it is, how much storage space, what kind of car it is, you know? Yeah. If it's exactly like a 7 and it weighs 800 kil- kilos, that's heavy. If it's a, closer to, I don't know, an, an MX-5 and it weighs 800 kilos, that's super light. Super um, light. I mean, let's not forget that, you know, when the Elise and the Exige bowed out, they were, I think they were the wrong side of a ton, weren't they? Yeah, I think I think by then, yeah. Certainly, anything with that three and a half liter Toyota engine, that gets a different level of performance. But you know, they were getting mm. quite hefty in it, weren't they? So, mm. and again, you know, as long as it doesn't come to the exclusion of anything, as long as you can still buy, I think Caterham should just have this rule that they'll always sell something that weighs less than five hundred kilos. Yeah, yeah. That should just be a rule. Yeah. Um, and Agreed. as long as they continue to do that, and that the, the sort of the heartland you know um entry level caterham is a 550 kilo car 
you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with, a, with, a, with an 800 kilo K-Trim. I think it's the way the world is going. It'll certainly be the lightest electric car on sale. Um, and it will be used for such a different purpose to other ones. Whether people will flock to it in sufficient numbers to justify the investment that must have been made to create it, um, I don't know, because, you know, it's it's a kind of new area of the market for Caterham. It's a sort of, I'll tell you what it is, it's the sort of area of the market that Morgan have plundered very well for years. Mm. You know, they have, you know, they have made the vast majority of their cars have been, whether it's three-wheeler or sort of four-fours, that sort of thing, they've been quite modest performance touring cars. Um, and you don't often see them screaming around tracks at track days, but you often see them, you know, we I see them coming up the Y Valley yeah, Road sure. because it's a nice, you know, sunny day, car club, you know, noggin and natter and the local, that kind of car. Um, and I see this new Caterham, if I'm right, I'm at all about it. I may be entirely wrong. This may be a totally redundant podcast, but if I'm right, um, that's what I see it being. And that's, it is, you know, it, it's a, Caterham have been on the fringe of that market, but it'll be interesting to see how it goes. So we'll see what a Caterham without a snorty uh, petrol engine, without a manual gearbox is like. I will say that, <clears throat> I know it's not the same, but I actually quite enjoy the delivery of an electric motor, that rush. Um, but what, you know, this thing is going to have a load of torque and it'll have a load of torque from nothing Caterhams, as we know them, do not have any kind of chassis electronics. And just imagine in the wet, with 240 horsepower and a load of torque, from nothing. I just wonder, is is this new hypothetical car that we're discussing going to have to have some sort of safety systems? I think it probably will. But it's it's so easy to do these yeah. days. I mean, my understanding is that the, the powertrain is an adapted off-the-peg motor bought in from something else, which is, you know, in these days of EVs, is terribly easy to do. Um and then it's just, you know, a question of, you know, going to a supplier, getting the relevant sensors and software, and Bob's your uncle. You've got anything you want. You've got ABS, yeah. you've got traction control, you've got stability control. But also, what I would really like Caterham do, to do, um, and I think we are just starting to see this in a few electric cars now, is break that... Mo- we always say that, you know, one of the problems with electric cars, or problems as we see it, is that they go from nothing to everything instantly. And that's actually quite a disconcerting um, experience. But there's no need for that to happen. They were like that because that's what they do naturally. And because, you know, they needed a USP. They needed to be, particularly in the high-performance cars, different to ICE cars. Because, you know, they didn't sound as nice or didn't sound like anything at all. They didn't have that kind of sort of emotional um, dimension to them. So they just, well, we'll just make them feel bloody fast instead. And that's what all the Teslas did. But there's no reason at all you can't program an electric motor to deliver its power in a much more progressive way and that's what i'd really like this thing to see i would i I would like this thing to i mean probably not quite have the torque curve of a you know (laughs) an old cross flow 1700 but but nevertheless just not do that meat and two veg bang Bang. you know off you go because Mm. you know others do that and i think that a caterham has to be has should offer a more considered sophisticated driving experience than that and okay. there's no reason why that can't happen. Just to demonstrate that British sports cars are not all the same, let's move on to another one. Aston Martin DB12, Ooh, the yeah. opposite end of the British sports car spectrum. So this is, we saw it this week, this is the replacement for the DB11. Um, it's cl- clearly derived from the DB11. But actually, 
This is supposed to be the start of a new era for Aston Martin. Um, they talk about a quantum shift and um, a revolution and all that sort of stuff. Didn't somebody um, point out that quantum is actually really small? Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. <laughs> so, well, I, I think I think we can assume that Aston Martin means it's a big leap. Um, yes. however it chooses to phrase it but and actually there is reason to believe that this is a big step because i think i'm right in saying this is the first series production aston martin um under the watchful eye of a couple of ex-ferrari people amadeo felice the former ceo and ceo at aston and roberto yeah. fidelli former um engineering boss at ferrari right. now in that role at aston martin um it's interesting, isn't it? We've got these two ex-Ferrari guys now applying their way of doing things to an Aston Martin. Yeah, and look at what's happened to the power. Bang, straight up. Bang. It's gone yeah. from like 540 to 680 horsepower. Yeah. Yeah, so it's um, got a load of power. It's a twin-turbo V8, the AMG 4-litre V8. Yeah. Um, the looks are... I mean, I, I'm going to wait until I see, I see it in the flesh, but... I'm, I'm seeing... This is, this is one of the really... I'm probably even mentioning this because there's nothing anyone can do with the information. I'm driving it tomorrow. Yeah, If you British are. Airways can get me to France... Yeah, you're supposed to be over France now. I'm at meant the moment, to be in you? France now, but that's another conversation, another story, which I, I won't whinge about my first world problems. Um, but yeah, I am driving it tomorrow, but uh, as I'm sure everyone listening to this knows, um, all these launches now are subject to launch embargoes whereby the simple... Um, agreement is is that on condition that you don't say a word about driving the car uh, or what the car is like to drive until a certain date then we'll let you drive the car and if you don't agree to that then you can't drive the car uh, which I personally think is fair enough um, but yeah I mean, so you were talking about the looks I, I just want to see it in the flesh yeah yeah because I'm, I'm uh, I really like the look of the DB11 I thought that was an absolutely cracking classically proportioned Aston Martin GT car um, and this new one I just can't I don't know whether it's because the press handouts have, you know, have had a bit of work on them, but it's just—I can't make my mind up about it. I think if I—I I think if it had just been launched like that, and we didn't know there'd never been a DB11, we might think be sitting here thinking, "Wow." Um, I just don't know whether it's going to be. Mm-hmm. More That's interesting because I—I can—I can take or leave the DB11 in terms of appearance. Really? Uh, yeah, I don't love it. I don't. I never, okay. never did. Never did love no, it. I always thought it was great. So the the new DB12. Um, it's got a load of clever technology, as you kind of expect from those ex-Ferrari guys. Um, EDIF, new trick adaptive dampers, very clever stability control. Um, and they've called it DB12, but for now there's no word on the 12-cylinder version. Do you know if there it will ever be one? What, have you, what are you hearing about that? Well, I, I, I can tell you what I've been told. Uh, and... You always have you know, to do this business for long enough, as you know, just as well as me. You have to interpret manufacturer speak. So if they say to you, um, there's not going to be a V12 version of this car, that doesn't mean there's not going to be a V12 version of this car. What it probably means is there, there may be a V12 version of this car, but either it hasn't been greenlit yet, or it's more than my job's worth to tell you about it, or there absolutely is going to be a V12 version of this car, but we're going to call it slightly, we're going to call it slightly something different. So that when you take, turn around to me and said you just never said there was a yeah, yeah. DB12 version, and you say, well, aha, this is the DB13. Yes. Well, they won't use that well, DB14. <laughs> um, so, you know, so, so even if they say to you, we are absolutely categorically never going to put a V12 engine in this car, you don't know they're never ever going to put a V12 engine in that car. Uh, okay, what I do know, I think I can say this. Yeah, I do know. I, I can say this. The V12 is not dying. Ooh. 
Okay. So it's not being killed by Euro 7? Uh, Aston Martin will continue to make V12 engines. Uh, I presume, because I haven't heard of a V12 version of the AMG engine, that means they'll continue to use the existing 5.2-litre V12 that they've used in the DBS and the DB11. And I, I also presume that that is going to be for now at least and let's not forget we'll see this car this year as well that's going to be kept for the dbs replacement which isn't going to be called the dbs all i know about that is it's going to begin with the letter v i genuinely uh-huh. don't know what it's going to be called um, if i had to guess i would say vanquish but that is absolutely a guess the vanquish was meant to be the mid-engine car which comes after the valhalla which came after the valkyrie um but when you put this to anybody at aston martin they sort of give you a, a bit of a grin and a sort of I can neither confirm nor deny look. So I really don't know. Um, but so, so the DB12 lives on. So would they keep that engine in production if they were never going to put it in the DB12? I don't know. Clear as mud. <laughs> mm, <laughs> we can, clear can, as mud. We're just going to have to wait and see, aren't we? What I do think is interesting, all that stuff you were talking about, about the E-diff, um, it's interesting. The V8 Vantage had an E-diff. Yeah. But the DB11 didn't. The DBS didn't have an E-diff. They both had just conventional mechanical lockers. Um, so actually, it's not getting anything, which the Vantage hasn't had for years, but nevertheless. But the adapter, the, you know, the clever adaptive damping. Also, it's got a bespoke Michelin Pilot 5S tyre on it. Mm. I didn't know the 5S was out. No. Now, you know, anybody listening to this knows, you know, the massive admiration we have for the 4S. Um, and... This has got the next generation of that tyre on it, and it's bespoke to this car. Now, what I find surprising about this is you go and buy yourself a Valkyrie, yeah, Mm. for a bazillion pounds, and that comes on Michelin Pilot uh, Cup 2R tyres. But those aren't specific to the Valkyrie. They're off the peg tyres. Michelin didn't, you know, so Aston Martin didn't feel the need or didn't have the money to develop a bespoke tyre, even for their hypercar, for the hyper-hypercar. But they've done it for the DB12. So what does that tell you about the change in attitudes at Aston Martin, or the change of resources, or both? I just find that it's a little detail. But in many ways, to me, I think it's very telling. I think what it says to me is that these Italians um, have just said, OK, we're just going to we're just going to, you know, put our weight behind the engineering. Yeah. And not just make cars that are great looking. We're going to actually make cars which, you know, like, like the Ferraris that they engineered. Well, there you were go. every bit to good as, to drive as they were to look at. And uh, a, bes- a bespoke tyre is what Ferrari would do, isn't it? Yeah. No, I might get in tomorrow and discover that it's terrible. I, who knows? Uh, I doubt it. But I just, I, I just find these little details. You know, someone somewhere, you know, there would have been some quite high-level high meetings where... The engineering team said, well, of course, what we'd really, really like is this brand. We've heard that there's this brand new um, Michelin tyre. Michelin are the best. Um, and it's the 5S. And we all know how good the 4S is. But wouldn't it be great if we not only had the 5S, but we could get them to do one specifically developed for this car? That would have been the, that would have been the dream. That would have been the goal. And instead of just the usual sort of, well, yeah, wouldn't it be nice? But come on, you know, get real. We, you know, we're not made out of money. Someone's just gone around and said, do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it potentially tells us a lot, doesn't it? And yeah, maybe. The, the other big thing about this car is the brand new interior. And I've only seen a couple of images, but it does look pretty special with, um, a, they call it a state-of-the-art infotainment system. Um, and actually, it, until now, most of the tech in Aston Martins has been pretty outdated, hasn't it? 
Um, Dreadful. So you'll you'll have to let us know. Well, a what the car's like to drive, how it looks, but also what this new interior is like. Do you know when you can tell us? Well, I think I can tell you. Well, well certainly with Aston Martins uh, recently, they have said when you get to go to drive the car. I had this with the with the DBS Seven Seventy Ultimate, um, which I drove not that long ago, and they said you can say anything as long as you don't tell people what it's like to drive. Uh, okay. Um, so I, I think I can say what the interior is like. Um, I can certainly, <laughs> okay. What I can certainly do is take a photograph of the interior and post it and people can see. Um, but I won't be able to tell you whether the car's any good until I can't remember what the date is, but it's sometime in June. Basically, it's, it's the day after everybody who's invited to drive it has driven it. Has driven it. Okay, fair enough. So um, it's going to be at least a couple of weeks before we get to find out <laughs> what it's like to drive. But um, it's a big, important car for Aston Martin. I I, I hope they've done a good job on it. We'll find out well, soon. Well, I, 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 I think it's, you know, it's like, you know, when there is a big change, as there has been in Aston Martin, the first car that results after that change is always big, isn't it? Because it's, it's you know, whatever, whatever it is, is one thing, but what it signifies is something else. Um, and I don't know how long... Um, Felicia and Fideli have been around and how finished the car was by the time they arrived. But I suspect they've been there for long enough to be able to... Um, if, do you remember when Uli Betts turned up there? He, well, you probably won't um, because you would have still been at school. Um, when the Vanquish came out in... When it was? The original Vanquish in 2001. And we all got terribly excited about this car. He turned up and had a look at it and said, well, we're not launching that. <laughs> and he just stopped it. Yeah. Yeah, and he was absolutely right. He just said it wasn't right. It wasn't ready. I can't remember what the delay was, but he literally he was new new, new boy on the block turned up, um, you know, sort of walked in, um, quite a domineering personality. Got a lot, put a lot of backs up, but did a lot of good stuff. Um, certainly in his early days, and just said we're not doing this. We can't put this car on sale. It's not ready. Yeah. They, they like to um, leave their mark, don't they, early on. And it's, it's probably yeah. important that they do. So we'll see um, what the Italian um, duo in charge now um, have been working on. Uh, okay, let's keep, keep clipping it along then. We need to, um, we're going to be talking about sports cars versus supercars in a moment. But before that, just something a little bit different. Our car finance partner, JBR Capital, um, they've given us this list of the most unusual cars that they've financed. Um, so I just wanted to run through some of these because it's really surprising. I could, honestly, one of them at least, I had to Google because I had no clue what it was. The Nissan NPT90. <laughs> Ever heard of an NPT90? I didn't know what that was. I um, had heard of it. I had heard of it. But I, 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 yeah, even I, and I, I, I would... Um, consider myself to be, you know, a geek's geek when it comes to such things. Even I had to go and remind myself. But yeah, I had it's an IMSA car. It's an IMSA car, yeah. So a, 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 yeah. an endurance racing prototype from the early 1990s. So if you remember, though, do you remember that Mark Blundell lap uh, of Le Mans in 1990, where you know his wastegates jammed shut and, and 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 all the engineers were shouting "abort lap, abort lap" in his headphones, and he went around and took five seconds off the lap record or whatever. Uh, it's the sort of the American racing version of that. Um, much more successful over there than the Group C equivalent was in the World Sports Car Championship. Um, I think it won two championships, maybe even three, certainly two championships back-to-back 
Um, and yeah, really the, the, the opposition by then was, you know, the Jaguars and things like that, but, uh, great looking car, um, must've been absolutely thunderous to listen to. Um, but proper thing. Yeah, so, and clearly there's one, I don't know whether it gets driven or it's in a collection or whatever, but somebody has gone to JBR and said, Oh, I'm thinking about buying this Nissan. Mm. Mm. Um, and they probably said, Oh, I'm not sure. Is it, is it a, is it a GTR? We don't, we don't, yeah. we, we, we don't, don't do many Nissan's. Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I said, no, it's not GTR. It's an, it's an IMSA car. Um, but it's, it's quite cool that they will, that, you know, they'll look at that and that'll give you on its value and, um, and its residuals and, um, pony up. They've also done a McLaren 720 GT3. It's another racing car. Um, and actually on that topic, they did a Porsche 962, which is just extraordinary. So I, th- I always thought, and, and this is me having rich man's fantasies, um, insofar as, uh, I, I, I'm sure, sure we'll do it. You just sit there and you just dream about what you do. But I think I, always, I thought a 962 would be a very good investment because they're sufficiently plentiful. So you, if you imagine you've got something like a Group C Jaguar, they're so rare and so specialist. And I imagine the bits, if you can get them, cost bazillions. And there are probably only two or three people you can go to who know how to fix and fettle them. But 962s, I mean, they made, I'm not sure, but well over 100 cars. Um, and, you know, and by the end of it, it wasn't even Porsche just making, you know, there were people making chassis, you know, there were carbon chassis for 962s and hybrid chassis for 962s. And, um, you know, there's so much expertise and also those cars were so well developed over such a long period of time. They were just, you know, there's pretty reliable things as well. Um, and so I, I don't know whether this car's, I presume it's a private, it's a privateer car, um, but what a thing to have. Yeah, brilliant. Really What a cool. thing to turn up at your track day in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just monster everybody. You um, would. So on the list, we've got an Elva Mark 7, which is a very pretty little um, under two litre sports racing car from the early 60s. Yeah, um, so... So, so that if you think if you know what a Lotus Twenty Three is, yeah. you kind of know what an Elva Mark Seven is. It's a beautiful little things. You can get them with all sorts of engines in there. You get Ford engines, Porsche engines, BMW engines. Um, so you kind of bought the car and then decided what you're going to do with it and got it the powertrain in that was best for whatever it was you were going to try and do in it. And they were very successful. I think they were very successful in the US as well as um, as over here. Um, and I think. I think Elva went on, which is why we now have the McLaren Elva, to build the custom ah. McLaren Can-Am cars. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I think that, I, so, so McLaren, yeah, back in the days of the sort of big banger Can-Am series in the late 60s and early 70s, McLaren made their own factory cars, things like the M8D and the M8F, but they also made customer cars, which are things like the M8C and the M8E. Uh, and I think... Someone's going to tell me how incredibly wrong I am about this, but I think Elva built, bought those for McLaren because McLaren didn't have the capacity to do it themselves. There you go. That explains yeah. the Elva link. That's um, the Elva connection. <clears throat> how familiar are you with the Mosler MT900? Well, only uh, quite familiar, but only because um, when they were quite the thing in racing circles, I did a few 24-hour races in things like Mazda RX-8s, um, and we were at one end of the grid, and the Moslers were down the other end of the mm. grid. Um, they were so fast, really. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would say that in the Silverstone twenty-four hour race from the sort of middle noughties, um, they'd have been the fastest thing out there. They'd have been quicker than you know race 
9-11s and all the other stuff that was around them. And they were very... Well, they were sophisticated cars. I mean, if you look at it, you, you think, oh, it's just, you know, it's a, you know, Mosler, I haven't heard of that. Uh, you discover it's American. You think, oh, well, it's just a big banger. But carbon fiber chassis. Um, I think it had a like an LT6 engine in it. Porsche gearbox. Um, really, actually quite a sophisticated car. And, aero. Yeah, aero. Uh, very, very light. I mean, you know, much, I mean, they were called the MT900 because... Um, well, M was Mosler, T was, I think, the engineer who developed it, and 900 was the target weight for the car. It was meant to be a 900-kilo car. I don't think it ever got anywhere near it. I don't think they ever came in under a ton. But nevertheless, compared to almost anything else out there, they were not only really, really powerful, um, you know, really stiff, really strong, they were really light too, um, which is why they did. I mean, they won championships. I mean, quite serious championships. I think, did one win British GT? don't know um but that level of championship on both sides of the atlantic and around europe um for quite a period of time i think it all went i think i I think they must have gone out of production or something happened and it was all over about about 2010 but for a short period in the early part of the century they were they were quite the thing and not to be sniffed at at all yeah um so the final one on this list of unusual cars that jbr capital have financed ferrari 250 mm oh what do you make of that Oh, I mean, that's a valuable car, isn't it? Well, yes, of course it is. Yeah, I mean, any 250mm, if it's a genuine 250mm, is, which, you know, I'm sure this one is, um, is a valuable car. But how much, it just so much depends on the provenance and the history and what it's done and whether it has that, you know, Ferrari Classico certificate. So the 250 mm was one of the early V12s, not one of the earliest. I think they were around in the sort of early 50s, 52, 53. Um, but with a 250 is the capacity of a single cylinder. So multiply that by 12, you get three litres. That's usually the size of the engine. So that was the Colombo three litre V12, which they were still using as a three litre V12 in things like the 250 short wheelbase and the GTO. Um, this wonderful, enduring, powerful, strong engine. Um, and back in the early 50s, um, you know, Ferraris really, really, really were all about the engine. By the early 60s, they kind of figured out they needed to handle a bit too, but by then they, they weren't bothered about that at all. So they were put in these very, very crude agricultural chassis. And I imagine, I've never driven one, but I imagine that something like that is, is a right handful. <laughs> um, I've, oh, I've, I've chased a few of them when I've been um, either chasing myself or taking part in the Millimilia retrospective. They're very popular. I say very popular. I think they only made 30, but you see them a bit um, on that sort of event. Um, they make the most unbelievable noise. Um, and they also come from that era where there were lots of different bodies. So there's no such thing as what does a 250mm look like? Because you can go and you know, look them up on the internet and you'll see three different photographs and they'll all say 250mm and you'll be, think, you'll be looking at three different cars. Um, so, yeah, they did open ones, they did closed ones, they had different body styles, probably from different body makers too. Um, but, yeah, cracking thing. Proper, brawny, hairy chest, early V12 Ferrari sports oh, racing car. Fantastic. I mean, millions, certainly. The point of all this is that, unlike some car finance companies, JBR Capital will at least have a look at anything that you might want to finance. I'm not saying they will agree to pull together a finance package for you, but they will have a look at anything, even if it's an obscure old racing car or a little-known sports car or something. It won't just be computer says no. 
it'd be interesting I mean, <laughs> when anybody sort of says we'll do anything I immediately start thinking about I bet you I can think of something that you want <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know um, but when there's stuff on their list that you and I both have to Google to find out what on earth it is yeah. Um, yeah. it shows they're pretty flexible doesn't it it's interesting stuff What Goes Up is sponsored this week by car finance specialist JBR Capital. We've been working with JBR Capital for a while now and it's been a brilliant partnership for us. High-end car finance is all the company does, meaning it understands the car market and car buyers better than most. So before you buy your next sports car, supercar, classic car, luxury car, even a brand new car, go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. Visit jbrcapital.com or click the link in description. And this bit is important. Tell them the intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Okay, so sports cars versus supercars. I was pondering this yesterday. That's why we're talking about it now. And actually, do you know, I I wanted this to be a bit of a debate. I wanted you to choose... Um, back supercars and I would back sports cars and we both explain why um, if forced to we would give up one rather than the other and I was going yeah. to explain why I would give up supercars um, to, to save sports cars and you were going to say why you would give up all sports cars to save all supercars the I, trouble I is probably we, we haven't both, been very helpful have I? <laughs> no we both agree don't we, we we'd, both, we'd both choose sports cars Yes, but the thing is, it's most of the time, and I suppose yeah. gunned ahead, you would because you know the, the thing. Well, I mean, uh, maybe we should just spend a minute explaining what we mean by a sports car and a yes. supercar. But 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 fundamentally, you're going to spend more time driving sports cars than supercars, and so you're going to have more fun. Yeah. Um, but, but okay, so what do you differentiates a sports car from a supercar? And let's have some examples. Okay, so the the best example that I can offer you right now is the original Audi R8. V8 engine, that's a sports car. V10 engine, that's a supercar. Wow, it's a balance that fine. There you go. That, that I think, is where the line is. Although it's constantly moving, and I I don't think I can really tell you quite why. What's, uh, What's an Aston Vantage? Sports car. Aston Vantage V12. Well, do you know what? The latest one, because it's quite an out there thing, that probably is a supercar. So this is a very... And, and, I, and I guess the point is is that there's there's absolutely no right or wrong with it. Everybody's dividing line is going to be different, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and it moves all the time. Also, um, let's choose the 911. So for me, everything up to and including a Carrera GTS is a sports car. Anything beyond that is a supercar. I see, but, I agree with that. No, I know. But the thing is, I, I but I can't look at a GT3 Touring, for instance, and say that's a supercar. But I can't even look at a Turbo S and say that's a supercar. Really? No. So you think they're and, all sports and, cars? And, I, I, I think, yeah, because to me, 911s are sports cars. Mm. Now, you could... I think years and years ago, I think you told me earlier we were on our 163rd podcast. Um, I think we had a conversation, probably the thick end of three years back, when we tried... I got ourselves tied in terrible knots to define what we thought a supercar was um, yeah. and what the differences were. And to me, it's just an entirely conceptual thing in your head. And it, 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 911 Turbo S, if you look at it on paper, you'd say, well, it's performance, it's power, everything else. Well, that, 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 that's a supercar. Mm. But then you get these things called junior supercars. Yeah, you do. <laughs> it's complicated, so, isn't it? Are all Ferrari supercars? 
to me, they see, are. See, uh, something like a Portofino, though. Isn't that a GT? Is that something else again? Uh, well, okay, okay. Well, yes, that's something else. Okay, let me rephrase it. Are no Ferrari sports cars? Because obviously, a pure sangue is well, is, is not to me a supercar because it's got four doors, and supercars don't have four mm. doors. Mm. Um, a Portofino um, is a Roma a supercar? I'd say GT oh. again. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> difficult, isn't it? But, but 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 maybe we shouldn't go round and round and say it doesn't maybe, really maybe matter. We... That's the point. It doesn't. It doesn't actually matter at all. Okay, so here's a quick. You can go and spend a weekend doing whatever you like in your choice of Caterham, your choice of Ferrari from production cars. I'm not talking about you know esoterica. Mm. Okay, well, because it's a hypothetical scenario, and because I can therefore choose to have spa for a day, and then yep. maybe blast around some of the roads in that part of the world, I choose yeah. the Ferrari because it's a hypothetical situation, and I can create this scenario where the Ferrari would come into its own. However, if it's if you offer me one tomorrow, and I have to be you know, I'm staying at home tonight and tomorrow night, so I have to be based from where I live. I'd probably choose the catering because I don't have all day. I can only go so far. I can only go on certain roads. I can't get on a racetrack. For me, they are less frustrating on the road. They are typically smaller, lighter and simpler cars. So they're often more engaging to drive at road speeds. Um, I wrote about driving a Series 1 Lotus Elise for the first time quite recently and I adored that thing. It was just so absorbing, so engaging. It's so much a part of the process of driving, like you are in a Caterham. In a sports car, you often have more space on the road because they're smaller. They often deal with bad road surfaces, and we have plenty of those, better than a supercar. Um, mm. you, you, often they don't, but okay, go on. No, yeah, of course, there are, there are exceptions. But think... Uh, uh, a sports car may well have more wheel travel, may well have smaller wheels, um, and that, that, that will help it deal with a, bum, a bumpy, bad road surface better. You're more likely to get a manual gearbox in a sports car than a supercar these days. I think that's just a fact. Definitely. Well, n- name, name a manual supercar. There you go. There you go. I'm not sure I can at the moment. Anyway, there, a sports car is going to have probably less reliance on chassis electronics because it won't have so much power um let's not forget that sports cars are cheaper to buy they're cheaper to run they're often more usable you've probably got better ground clearance not in every case but they're they're also not so wide probably a more supple ride quality i i I think well on, on that exact point i think a really significant consideration is the people i know um unless they're really very wealthy um most of the people I know who have supercars, they are concerned, understandably so, about how many miles they put on them. Because if you have supercars, you know you, you know that the residual value of that car is so dependent, so much more dependent than any other category of car in how few miles it's done. Which is about as big a disincentive to drive it as, as you'll get. And I just don't want to think to myself, oh, I'll probably better not drive the Ferrari this weekend on that wonderful trip to Scotland. I'll take the Range Rover instead because, you know, I'm going to put a thousand miles on the car and that'll take 
a bazillion pounds off its off its value. I mean, where's the fun in that? Yeah, it's a big consideration that one. It's a it very, really very is. big consideration. Yeah, and um, it stops it stops people enjoying their cars. Just to um, look back to something we discussed earlier. So the, the news of the DB12. Okay, I'm interested in that car. I would be hopping in my seat right now if that was news of an Aston Martin sports car to sit beneath the Vantage. Smaller. Oh, no, I know, I know, it's, I know. But I'm just dreaming. I'm fantasizing. But if there, if it was going to happen, maybe with a little V6 or something, I'd yeah. be so excited about that car. Yeah. Much more than I am about the DB12. Yeah, but as we've discussed on this podcast time and time again, we're weird. Well, we are weird. I know. I'm not saying Aston Martin should build one. I'm just saying if they no. did, I mean, I'd it, be would, all over it. It, it would die on its ass. It would. It but would. It probably, they'd probably sell quite a few, but they, they'd never get back the investment cost. It would move their brand into an area of the market they, they've been trying to escape from, frankly. Um, and while a few slightly silly petrol heads like you and me would go, oh, isn't that wonderful? Mm. Everybody else would go, well, that's not an Aston Martin because it hasn't got 600 horsepower. Mm. Yeah. Nevertheless, it would be the one that I'd be most excited about. Um, there's also, you know, sports cars tend to be subtler than supercars. Not as noisy, yep. not as brash, yep. not as outlandish in their styling. And there is yep. something about that for me. You know, sometimes it's quite fun to be turning heads in your supercar. Um, but when you just want to get to where you're going under the radar, um, you don't want to be noticed. I'd far rather be in a sports car far rather okay can i mount the case for the defense and there is an element of devil's advocacy in here because as, yeah. as we've already agreed push comes to shove um sports cars are where it's at nevertheless i think that there are certain supercars which can take you places figuratively not literally that sports cars just can't and l- let me give you i mean the best example i can think of um our mate RS Driver has just taken delivery of a very late brand new McLaren 720S. And, you know, he has a superb collection of wonderful cars. But there aren't many that I'm more jealous of than that. Um, only because I once spent six months with one. And the novelty of that car, I think almost unlike anything else I've ever run, never ever wore off it never lost its capacity to absolutely astound me um, and it would do it in different ways um, i've talked about this trip before but it just lives with me i took it to geneva and back for when geneva had a motor show uh, and i drove it out one day i did the show the following day i drove it home the day after that um did about whatever it is 1500 miles maybe a bit more um over the mountains in both directions and that car's ability to cruise down a motorway at uh, 80 miles an hour, listening to music, be quiet, really comfortable, beautiful visibility, um, really feeling good about myself, but, you know, just being a car. And then suddenly to change character, turn into a something completely different, um, which was one of the most thrilling devices you could ever choose to punt across the right kind of road. And I know that big white supercars often don't find the right kind of road. Um, I found that absolutely compelling um, and a breadth of ability that I don't think that any sports car has. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, supercars are better than sports cars, not at all. What I am saying is that there are, nevertheless, circumstances you can find yourself in where a supercar can still do things other cars can't do, Mm. the right sort of supercar. 
And I will admit that the right sort of supercar or hypercar can reach higher heights. If you want the most thrilling, the most intoxicating driving experience, maybe it does need to be a supercar or a hypercar. However, you need either a racetrack or a very particular type of road. You need a remote yes. road, a quiet yeah. road. Yeah. You need a, if you just a get smooth in your car, road. Uh, you're, you're completely right. I mean, I, I can get in my Caterham, which on a really, really good day is 135 horsepower. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I will be enjoying that car literally less than a mile from where I live because you just can. Um, and you can't do that in supercars. You're absolutely right. You need a very specific environment for them to come into there. And when they do, they are different um, and they are better. But, you know, it's this thing that I've talked about so many times, the amount of fun a car providing being how much, how enjoyable it is multiplied by the number of times you get to drive it. So for me, to summarise, sports cars are fun more often, but a supercar in the right environment takes you to higher heights. So that's a, that's actually slightly strange, isn't it? Because that is a qualitative versus a quantitative measure. And you would think that you and I would go for quality over quantity every time. But we don't, because actually out there in the real world, we would rather have slightly less fun a lot more often yeah. than the yeah. other way around. Yeah. And I, it's probably because of the way our roads are now. They're busy. Um, you're being watched by goodness knows who. Um, there's not a lot of space, poor road surfaces. And so the, out, the upshot of all that is that a sports car is more likely to be fun more often. Um, so that's, that is why, that's why, guns also, to my head, I would you choose can sports buy cars. a genuine, proper sports car, 1,500 quid. Yeah, you could, yeah, yeah. Good luck getting a supercar for that. For anything like that money. There yeah. you go. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. We're, I'm not going to do a listener question because it's been a busy episode. We'll do one next week. Um, but thank you everybody for listening um, and make sure you tune in next week as well bye ACAST powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend the Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.